Thank you. I'd like to uh, do this for the people who I've been, uh, I've been sitting with my back to all night. Sorry. It's kind of hard. You can't strap a, a piano on and kind of swing it around like a guitar. Hey! Hey, rock and roll. It's called the Root Beer Red. Hi, I'm Milan Altman. I'm Dave Justow. And this is Billy Joel A to Z. everyone and welcome to Billy Joel A to Z as today we discuss the legendary instrumental song Root Beer Rag. Root Beer Rag is the fourth song on side one of Billy Joel's third studio album Street Life Serenade which was released on October 11th 1974. Root Beer Rag is the track before the final song on the side which is Roberta that we did on our last episode. How convenient. Although Root Beer Rag was never released as a single, it did appear on the B-side of the Big Shot 45 released in 1979. Root Beer Rag is one of three instrumentals that Billy Joel has officially put out over the years. Alon, can you name the other two? <laughs> I know Nocturne is one of them. I'm trying to think what the third one is. Yeah, well, I had to look it up because I didn't know and I've never heard the song, apparently, and I was surprised. What album is it on? Street Life Serenade. Oh, is it the Mexican Connection? Yes, I didn't know okay. that was an instrumental. <laughs> I forgot if it had some random word in it somewhere, like I handball. Almost, I was almost going to wait. Handball, right, exactly. <laughs> Mexican <Root> Connection. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay, so in the rankings, I cannot imagine for the life of me that this will be high in the rankings. Since it seems most forgettable, Christopher Bonanos, his 2015 Vulture article out of 121 songs. Alan, where do you think he places this fine little ditty instrumental? Uh, let's just say 83. No, it's uh, almost like Roberta. It's 116. He doesn't All right. for it. He says, yeah, maybe it sounded cool when your friend was banging it out on the music room piano in the eighth grade but put it next to the gnarly chords of some actual ragtime, and you quickly realize that a rag built mostly on a C major triad is pretty weak sauce. Wow, that is a burn. That's a burn. <laughs> uh, Glenn Gamboa rated it, ranked it at 95. He says the exact opposite, a good time instrumental that shows off Joel's piano playing skills as well as his sense of humor, but still at 95. And the friends break it a little higher at 69. I like when someone says that this shows his sense of humor, like it's a hilarious instrumental. What's well, funny about it? I don't know. I, I think it's funny. I think the uh, places where they pause, especially that little part in the middle, I feel it is funny. I think of it as funny all the time, especially when you see him doing it and it's live and he's like pointing when it stops. I, I think it is funny. Yeah, I think it's fun. I think it's playful. I think just the word funny is like, I don't know. I feel like words have to be there or someone getting hit by a pie. 
I suppose so. I still think it's funny. I, I think that's a good thing to say. Yeah, that's fine. So the fans put it at 69. That's uh, I'd probably put it somewhere like that myself, somewhere in the middle. Yeah, probably. But here, you know, here's what I'm thinking about the entire process and possibly this whole album. So I think Billy Joel was extremely jealous of Marvin Hamlish at this time. I believe that the timeline completely adds up. This guy, Marvin, ha- Billy Joel is the piano man. He put out an album a year. Wait, did, in 73, the same year the Sting came out, he put an album called Piano Man. And this guy, Marvin Hamlish, comes in and all of a sudden he's all the rage playing piano. And the entertainer, the ironic song that's on the next Billy Joel album, but it's also on the soundtrack to the movie The Sting, is the biggest hit, like, almost ever. It's huge. I was alive during that time. I promise you it was huge. And it's an instrumental piano piece. And clearly it must have been driving Billy Joel insane where he felt he needed to say, well, you know, I could do that too. Yeah. Right. And not only can I do that too, but mine is an original. I'm not just taking some Scott Joplin song from 60 years earlier and re-recording it and making it a number three hit. And that is what we've been talking about for as many episodes as we've been doing is that Billy Joel is the true man and he takes a genre and he makes it his own. You're absolutely right. Marvin Hamlish stole Scott Joplin's stuff and he made an entire album of piano music of ragtime and it sold so well. I I guarantee that Billy Joel was feeling a little burn. Yeah, he had to. And there's actually a live recording of Billy Joel from 1974 where he is playing a bit of Scott Joplin's The Entertainer before he goes into his The Entertainer. And he says, you know, I got a song that's also called this, but uh, I'm not going to change the name of it. Well, what I don't understand is why he this song, this album was recorded in 1974. In the, the Sting was released in December of 1973. So I'm not exactly sure why he thought putting a song called The Entertainer which was one of the biggest songs of 1974 to put it on the album. I I'm confused by that. Well, cause he had already, you know, it's the words are the entertainer. He can't, what's he going to call it? It's very clear. If you heard that song and just saw the lyrics and didn't know the title, you would say, I bet this is called the entertainer. Cause like, cause it, it would have to fit the same scheme. If it was like, Oh wait, they already used up the entertainer. What could we call it now? The blank, you know, what's, what else could be there? No, but I understand. But I think if I, it made that album with the, the, some of there's another one we discussed about this, like where it's the same timeline. I don't remember what it was. Yeah. Uh, the rhinestone cowboy. That's right. That's right. Those rhinestone days. I would have, um, even though we, you know, the entertainer is a great song. I might've waited another album 
I mean, you know, I, I don't know whether it makes it to turnstiles. I don't, it doesn't, it could have actually fit on turnstiles, but I'm just saying uh, it's confusing to, and I believe that's the only one that was released off Street Life Serenade. So you're, you know, getting into a hazy area to hope that you get another hit called The Entertainer when this, I mean, think about it again. How did this ragtime song become such a smoking hit? Billy Joel had to have been seething. I believe that is where this song comes from. And he's showing off and he's mentioned it's a it's a show off song, right? It totally is. Absolutely. You've heard that too, right? Yeah, yeah, he's he's showing off what he can do and how fast he can play it, which is why it's funny if you saw that him playing it in 2013 and that New Orleans Jazz Festival, and it's clearly so much slower. And the crowd yeah. is not digging it at all. Yeah, it's so much slower. And then you contrast that to the one from 1975, the Great American Music Hall, where he's going even faster than the recorded version. And the crowd goes crazy when it's over because it's such a crowd pleaser when a guy's playing that fast. I have written down from that performance, sick audience reaction. Like if we listen to that whole concert, which I didn't have time to do, but like I bet that got a bigger applause than any other song that he did that night. It was so exciting watching him play that. Also, on that old gray whistle test that we love where they have that, they just kept the camera on the keyboard the whole time, on his fingers, watching him play. They, they did the right thing because you want to see it. And it's unbelievable watching him do what he does. He even has time to, like, I think, scratch his nose, which doesn't seem possible. Yeah, yeah there's like one moment where he doesn't need the left hand, so he always lifts it up. Yeah, and there's that part where he's playing with the right and just tapping the keys with the left, and it really looks like a joke. Like, it it just looks like there's nobody that can play like this. It's a complete show-off piece, but it's also a piece like an Angry Young Man where you just don't think you're going to be playing these songs at 70. You, you, you have no, you're a rock and roll star. You're, you're thinking, you're assuming you're going to die at 40. So this won't be an issue. <laughs> yeah. And then there he is at 70 playing it with Lang Lang. Right. In a dueling piano situation. Yeah. Well, Lang Lang could keep up, but uh, Billy Joel still, I mean, obviously this is a, this, this is hard, you know, probably once you reach 30, you probably couldn't even perform it that quick anymore. I mean, that was, uh, did you see, hear the live at uh, WIOQ performance in Philadelphia? No, that was even faster. I thought they had sped it up like a little arty rip action. <laughs> it was it was the fastest version I ever heard. I don't really I don't know how the band keeps up with it because it's really quick. It really is. He really was something else. But it is a there's just no other way to say it. It's a it's a show off piece. Yeah, and it's really good. I mean, besides Bananos ruining it for me there by saying that, oh, it's only a C major or whatever he said. Yeah. To me, I'm like, this is great. And it sounds just like a classic ragtime piece. It totally could fit. If you told me this was from 1915, I would say, yeah, okay. Yeah, this totally could have been in the Sting soundtrack. But Marvin Hamlish was the king of the world at that time. And I'm sure Billy Joel was like, this stinks. My uh, This album went nowhere, my next one. And then, you know, how was then Marvin Hamlish became the toast of Broadway. And then Billy Joel taught, taught him a lesson in 77. <laughs> Wait, what did he do to him in 77? Oh, Marvin Hamlish? Yeah. Oh, he uh, did all the music for a chorus line. No, oh, Marvin did in 1977. Yeah, yeah. I think no, Billy, Billy taught him a lesson. 
Oh, which outdid the, a chorus line. Well, it didn't outdo it, but it certainly rivaled the greatness of what Marvin Hamlish had done on Broadway. And then, of course, in 2002, when uh, Moving Out came out, Billy showed who the real king of Broadway was. Yeah, he did not. <laughs> uh, remember no original songs the exact opposite of everything we love about billy he did a broadway show with no original songs not one not one not cool man and yeah. remember when we had michael Riedel on and he's like and he went to dinner with him he's like yeah i'm thinking about writing some new stuff and he's like oh that'd be great well, this so, close it almost happened and so here's the part where you, you probably heard it but Street Life Serenade, the other reason he did this as an instrumental is he clearly stated he ran out of material. He didn't have anything left. He had nothing left to say, which, again, just says, wow, this guy only had a certain amount of songs for each album. And then I guess he had fillers. And then he's like, I can't do this anymore because I only have five songs and everybody needs nine or ten. And I, I just can't. But what, 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 of course, he should do is just not put out an album every year. You should have put one every two years. Have your five songs. Hold off on that. And then do another five. Yeah. Well, well, we'll do an instrumental. He ran out of material. Billy Joel. In 1974. Already out of ideas. He's already out of ideas. Yeah. Right. It was two instrumentals on the album, like you said. So that's kind of funny. And he mentions before that 75 performance at Great American Music Hall that Rolling Stone called this song really filler. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, it is. And it's self-indulgent. That's the word we were looking for, for sure. And it's just kind of funny for like, you, you come off Piano Man and you, you, the most important thing you can do is have that follow up. Like we talk about with The Stranger of 52nd Street, which he completely did. But he almost gave up on, you know, you we told that story about Piano Man where they told him to get a regular job and then somehow it takes off and then he puts no effort into the next album. Then he puts all his effort into turnstiles and nobody cares, probably because of this album. And then, of course, obviously it turns around, but it certainly is one fascinating career for sure as a musician. It certainly is. And he, look, he never did another instrumental again after these first three albums. He always had words after this. We had Nocturne from Cold Spring Harbor. Oh, right. and these Nocturne's two. on Cold Spring Harbor, right. Yeah, yeah, he never did it again, right. Well, well, then, I mean, that just would have been an embarrassment. You can't put out another instrumental. You're the, the hitmeister. If he needs help, he could just go to Cindy Lauper and say, hey, write some words for this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. That would be the answer. Root, root, be rag. Root, root, be rag. Are you talking about the magazine, Root, be rag? Oh, the Billy Joel fan newsletter. Yeah. Yes, I am. You know, I, I got uh, Richie Kanata's uh, mom's manicotti recipe off that magazine. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you could get out of that magazine. <laughs> it's good. I read I've read some articles in it. It was actually pretty cool. Cool interviews with the band and stuff. Yeah. Do you actually did you see the, the special edition Christmas episode? No. Do you know what Billy Joel's favorite album was in 1980? Of the like of the year? Yeah, of the year. Uh, the cars. Some somebody wrote in and they're like, "What's your favorite album that's not yours?" Was, so what was his answer? Houses. It's Zenyatta Mendata. What's that? The Police. Oh, okay. I never knew how to pronounce that. Yeah, well, I probably pronounced it wrong too. Temptation.
You know, what I always pronounce wrong is the Moog synthesizer, because I always say ah, Moog. Yes. But Billy but, says Moog. Oh, I thought he said, oh, yeah, I wrote, right. Yeah. Oh, it says Moog or it says Moog. Moog? <laughs> yeah, I, yeah I, I, I was having trouble with that, too. So wait, what is so? So there's a little part where there's like a synthesizer thing in it, right? But it's just like Angry Young Man shit, right? Like where he does that electric part two. Yeah, I think he's playing both things at the same time or layering it in the studio, maybe. But they or he has his, you know, his like other synth guy does it live. Yeah, that one part. But um, it's the part I always thought it was the band singing, actually, near the end where they go. Wah, wah, wah. Like, that's just the sound of the synthesizer doing that. But but isn't it very like Angry Young Man where he has all these instrumental parts or, and then he has to go to that electric because he said he never looked, wanted to use it again. And then he used it again in turnstiles, unless it's a different synthesizer we're talking about. But clearly there was an electronic synth in Angry Young Man as well, where he plays both at the same time. Yeah, I think it might be a different one, but uh, this one was like real popular in the early 70s. So I think he was like he had to get his hands on it. And his heroes, the Beatles, did use it on a few songs on Abbey Road. Oh, is that right? What did they do? You know, any particular songs they used it on? Yeah. So the Beatles used it on Because Here Comes the Sun and Maxwell's Silver Hammer. Oh, I just can't think of it in my head. But yeah, Billy Joel said that the reason he wrote the song was just to have an excuse to use the Moog. It's not a good reason, though, because he could have used added it to any other song. Also, there's no reason why it couldn't have been on uh, Last of the Big Time Spenders. That's true. I didn't know about this album and I never understood Billy Joel. But in 1984 or five, while I was at college, in fact, I'll show I'm trying to get a hold of the video. I'm pretty sure that I used a, a building at Cornell where you went to school that looked like a giant piano to me. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, that's I think it's Uris Hall. You're in a hall. What the hell are you talking about? <laughs> anyway, I'll, when you see it, you can put it on Instagram and everybody can see it for themselves. So I had a, the building that was looked like a giant piano. That's what I thought it did. And I had this guy come out and play the piano, you know, like a like he like on a green screen. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure I used root beer rag. But what I can't figure out is how I thought of root beer rag, because I still may, I don't know whether I knew Billy Joel's back catalog then or not. So I, I'm confused on how I found it. But uh, my fr I'm waiting for my friend to send it to me and hopefully we'll be able to put it up on Instagram and you'll be able to see it. It's really quick and it's really fun. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe you heard it in the soundtrack of The Sting 2. No, I'm positive that was not the case. <laughs> okay. Sting 2 is an awful, awful movie with Jackie Gleason and Terry Garr. <laughs> but oh. they should have used more ragtime songs and been like, oh, Billy Joel's got a new one. <laughs> Well, Billy Joel would have been smart enough to be like, no, I'm not. I'm not into the sting, too. Maybe he was angry that they didn't ask him to do a soundtrack. Maybe he was just like, you guys know I'm a piano player, right? Yeah. Are you aware of my nickname? Piano Man? Because then you remember or maybe you don't know. But then Marvin Hamlish, after you know he won the Oscar for that, he got to do the James Bond soundtrack. after that for The Spy Who Loved Me, he wrote The Spy Who Loved Me. Uh, nobody wow. does it better.
on fire i guarantee there was got to be some jealousy there now here's the fun marvin hamlish story that'll tie the two of them together my boss one time went to uh, lunch with marvin hamlish and his wife i don't know 15 years ago or so and i think that they were eating clams or oysters was part of the story and just like billy joel does <laughs> <laughs> i thought for sure marvin hamlish would be eating a pastrami sandwich he just looks like <laughs> you'd go to a deli with that guy no apparently he's a shellfish guy you're right just like billy joel go figure I wonder if those guys ever I, I think I looked it up to see if there was any connection between them. I found nothing. And they were both popular in completely different ways at this point. You know, well, not in 74 so much, but in 77, completely at the top of their games. And yet uh, there is no but in different venues, musically different. You know, is that weird? You know, Broadway and rock. And they were at the top of their games in 1977 and then crossed over Billy's jealousy in 74. <laughs> it's weird because I would never think of them as contemporaries. Even I think of them as being such separate things. Yeah, because Marvin Hamish always seemed older, I guess, because right. he because he was a more of a Broadway guy and a movie soundtrack. Guy, and those guys always seem older. Yeah. I, and I think I guess, he actually but, was older, too. So, oh yeah, he probably was older, right? Like by maybe 10 or 20 years. Right. Yeah. Well, I got a question for you, Alan. I mean, this is an interesting one since we were just talking about it in 2013 and he plays it in New Orleans live. The crowd was not digging it. Does he can he even play this? And is it worthwhile to play when it's slowed up? Does he play this live at all anymore? And did he ever besides the one or two times we've seen? Yeah, surprisingly, this has been played 125 times live. It's the 41st most played Billy Joel song. Yeah, but what, what are the years? So he took a break, a long break. From 1982 to 2006, he did not play this song. He played it all through the 70s, probably way more than what we know. And then he played it again starting in 2007. It became pretty regular. He would go through certain tours where he would do it a lot. He's played it in the teens a bunch. In 2016, he played it that one time in 2019. That's surprising. I, don't, I can't for the life of me figure out where this would go in a live concert where it would fit you'd think he'd have to do it early because it's like an angry young man thing where it's fast and he'd have to get it before his fingers get tired but it doesn't really feel like a song he should be playing early that's what i'm saying exactly right you can't you wouldn't want him to open with this well that could be cool though maybe 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 but you know when you open a show you you kind of want epicness and that's why angry young man is epic or Miami 2017. I, I don't know. I, I I wouldn't. I don't think I'd want to go to a show where he opened with this. I'd be disappointed, I think. I would like it just because of the fact that it's rare. Right, right. No, that's a whole nother story. <laughs> yes. Now, if he did it while we were there, right, the rareness would be exciting and then we could report back to everybody listening. Oh, my God. Alan and I finally went to see the show together and we hit all the rarities. We were at the best concert Billy Joel ever did. He played Roberta and Root Bear Rag. Well, he just, he just did everything <laughs> on Street Life Serenade, and everybody was kind of pissed. <laughs> he, he played all of Cold Spring Harbor and Street Life Serenade and nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> That's ironically the worst concert ever. <laughs> 
Well, Dave, it's time for the trivia portion of the show. Do you have a stumper for me? You know, Alon, I told you recently I wasn't going to do any more Dave Juskow trivias <laughs> because we had done them already. But I couldn't help myself. I wasn't sure where to go with this. It's a tough one. So I made a personal trivia version again that coincides with this song. Okay, good. The only song Dave Juskow had memorized to heart was the Marvin Hamlish version of The Entertainer. In the summer of 1984, in Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn, Dave Juskow did a comedy bit in which, since that song was the only one he knew how to play, he actually, this one time only, incorporated a Bruce Springsteen song into the melody. What was that song? I mean, that's a tough one because it's a, it's a Bruce Springsteen song, and it was almost like a parody like you do, but it was the most popular or the, the, the biggest charting Bruce Springsteen. It was the summer of 1984. That, I guess that's the clue. Okay, so was it Born in the USA? Well, it's that album. Dancing in the Dark? Yes. <laughs> How did those go together? You can't start a fire without a spark, even <laughs> if we're just dancing in the dark. Oh, screams. I tell you, screams. <laughs> this is why you were a legend. <laughs> yeah, well, they had a piano on stage at Pips in Brooklyn, so I was able to play that song. And then I would do, I think, that and maybe jump <laughs> to it or something. And I would just <laughs> play songs to that melody all the, and sing songs to that melody all the time. I think this could still work. Try this on stage next time you have a piano near you. Right. Thank you. That's what Chris Murphy keeps telling me. We have another friend comedy always gives me the wrong advice. Keep doing that. Mr. Magoo stuff. People love it. Now, this would be funny. People still know the entertainer and you could just <laughs> modernize it instead of doing Bruce Springsteen, pick some newer song. Like what? I don't think I've known a newer song. Camilo Caba Cabano. What? Yeah. Pick something from Camilla Cabello. Cabello. <laughs> I can't believe I even I think I saw her on the Today Show. I'm such an old man. You watch the Today Show? Wow. <laughs> That's the trivia question now. <laughs> How old does a person have to be to watch the Today Show on a daily basis? Average age, 78, for sure. <laughs> Average age, Marvin Hamlish. <laughs> That's right. Man, I just Hamlished you. <laughs> <laughs> You've been Hamlished. <laughs> That's when Billy Joel got Hamlished. <laughs> it's 74 man he's you know he's listening to that entertainment he's like what how can this instrumental piano music be successful that's supposed to be me i've been spending two albums writing words to my piano pieces like an why, idiot why, why am i wasting my time <laughs> well Alon, i hope you have a better trivia question than mine and i apologize everybody for it mine i've got like two or three uh okay. i'll throw a couple out here uh, this one's about the Moog synthesizer. Oh, God. One of the very one of the very earliest uses of the Moog synthesizer in rock music back in 1967 was on the song Strange Days by what California band? Well, it's not Cream, is it? No. No, California. Oh, so is it, it the Mamas and the Papas? No. Beach Boys? No, the song is Strange Days from an album of the same name by oh, this band. Of, first of all, I was thinking of Strange Brew. Obviously. Yeah, I know. I know. But then you say California band. Uh, OK. An L.A. band. Not Crosby, Stills and Nash. With a very iconic lead singer. So it's not Crosby, Stills and Nash. I'm no, probably, no. OK, you didn't, you didn't say no. I'm sorry. Buzz. <laughs> right. And it's probably, you know, I don't know any of that 60s stuff. I'm just thinking of L.A. band. OK, Van Halen. No. 
Um, shit. I think I said all the California bands I know. Strange Days. Do I know how that goes? Can no, it's, it? it's an al- it's an album track. It wasn't a hit. Oh, the well, hit from the album was "People Are Strange." Oh, the Doors. Yes. Okay. Well, thank God, at least I knew that one. Boy, how embarrassing would that be? How do you do a music <laughs> podcast and then you don't even know that? Yeah, one and then I'm like, funny. they also had a song called "Light My Fire." <laughs> uh, uh, Jim Morrison was their lead singer. Uh, 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 Van Halen. Uh, 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 Van Halen. <laughs> um, okay, and they use a mood right? That right? Well, that uh, what is his name? Uh, Rob. Uh, well, Ray Manzarek was Ray the Manzarek. keyboardist. Right. But the Moog was used by Jim Morrison. He had a button to press whenever he like said a, a syllable. Basically, he would push a button and it would add a weird like echoey effect to it. That Moog or Moog, whatever it's pronounced, that's not what they use for that Bon Jovi uh, living on a prayer, is it? Is that the kind of thing you're I, talking about? You know, it kind of sounds kind of like that, but I think that's different. I think that's more like what they do there is more like that Peter Frampton, like talking through your yes, guitar thing. Yes, yes, that talk box. I can't believe that song was so successful with that in it. How much would Christopher Bananas hate that song? (laughs) (laughs) And it sounds like my chicken clucking from that one song. Yes, it does. You were just doing that before. (laughs) That's terrifying and hilarious when you do that. Uh, what's your other one? Uh, the other one, this one's about root beer. <laughs> Good. That's what I was hoping. I was thinking about doing a root beer question. I too. was thinking of doing a thing to see how many root beer brands you can name. I can name a lot. Uh, what do you think? Let's see. Let me set an over under. Uh, if I put an over under at six, what would you take the over or under? Yeah, I take the under on six. Okay. Do you want to try? Yeah, I think I got like four in my head. Um, Hires, A&W, Stewart's uh shasta <laughs> they did a root beer they did all different flavors yeah oh, okay birch birch or that's birch beer birch beer different similar style right i guess i'm done oh so you were right on four you missed uh like barks oh bark mug right. oh mug right i just had that the other day too that's so funny uh, i didn't i wasn't sure if that was around in the 70s yeah, that's one been one of the old ones, I think. A- ABT, that's been around for a long oh, time. I don't know that one. And then they're like the, the the hip ones nowadays, Boylan, Virgil's. Oh yeah, those are I love root beer. I just had root beer's one the great. Other day at my mother's. It really is good. I remember I also like birch beer too, and I don't know what the difference is, but I like them both. I never used to like root beer. You really it is an acquired taste. It's kind of weird because it tastes stupid and yet it's delicious for some reason. Well, it's really sweet, but it has a little bit of a spice to it, I guess. But I always liked it. Even as a kid, I think the foam of it was fun. It was more foamy than Coke was. So it kind of was fun to just suck the Wait, foam. I can remember the A&W theme. A&W root beer gives that frosty mug taste. A&W root beer. Something about a frosty mug, frosty mug taste and a, and a mustache. Hold your root beer that way? Because that's how I hold a frosty mug of A&W. But that's not a frosty mug. 
sure tastes like one. A W root beer's got that frosty mug taste. A W root beer's got that frosty mug taste. A W root beer's got that frosty mug taste. Root beer floats are good. That's the best. Oh You're my god! Vanilla ice cream and something—it's got to be root beer. That's my favorite dessert. In fact, when I went to that Italian restaurant in Staten Island that I always talk about all the time that my friend owns, he made me a root beer float. It was the special that day. And me and uh, my friend Kenny and all the men got it. We had, well, they had their wives and I bought a date and all the men got root beer floats. My other friend was 85. Uh, but we all got root- and his wife was like, Bob, you know, you're going to be up all night. He's like, but it's so delicious. <laughs> and uh and we all had root beer floats and he put chocolate like that chocolate shell, that magic shell on the top of it. Oh, my God. It was so good. Root beer floats. They're the best. They actually make this. It's like a push pop kind of thing. Now you can find it in the freezer at the supermarket. I think maybe Barks makes it. So it's like the root beer is kind of like an Italian ice consistency. And then it's got vanilla ice cream in it. And so you just like push it up and eat it like that. So Ooh, it's so good. Sounds- that sounds really good. They it's like a non-liquid a, root beer float. They used to have a root beer float gum that I actually liked back in the 70s. It was really delicious. Why do do we know why he called this root beer rag? We never even touched on that. Is there a re- I didn't see anything. He mentioned was- in one of the Q&A things that he was like, well, I like root beer. Yeah, right. I heard that. But it's a little lame, you know, to call something a root beer rag when you're a rock and roller. Maybe because, like, if you think back to some of the Scott Joplin stuff, they all had kind of simple names like that. His famous one was the Maple Leaf Rag. Yeah, yeah, I know. I'm just saying when you're a rocker, it should, you know, be like the tequila rag or something, you know, like, so it's it's risky. Yeah. It's taking a risk in many ways, but it's, it, it, it is the perfect name for this song. It works. Right. Or it could be that root beer just think makes you think of something from 1900 or 1890 or whatever the whole album is like that old school style so maybe he was thinking of what was a popular drink back then oh, like you were saying in the last episode with roberta a little western feel to it excellent that makes yep. sense yeah <laughs> well folks that was root beer rag if you like our podcast be sure to go to apple and give us five stars We release new episodes every Tuesday and Thursday, so make sure you hit subscribe so you don't miss a single song. Follow us on social media at PhillyJoelAtoZ and give us some feedback. Would you like to hear Billy play this now, even though it's much slower? Do you consider this song to be album filler? And do you want Dave to send you Richie Cannata's Mom's Manicotti Recipe from the December 1980 issue of Root Beer Rag? Yeah. He'll mail it right to you. Just send us your address. Yeah. All right. Until next time, I'm Alan Altman. I'm Dave Juskow. And this is Billy Joel A to Z.
Thank you.